Welcome to the Awakening Shalom Podcast. The Awakening Shalom Podcast is an opportunity for digital faith formation at Myers Park Baptist Church that accompanies the Awakening Series, a year-long journey of exploration and discernment which invites all people to come learn about the current social justice issues of the day and how they impact our faith. What we are awakening to is Shalom, the Hebrew word for the peace and beauty that exists when we are living in right relationship with God, ourselves, other human beings, and all created things. Welcome. I'm so glad to see all of your faces here today joining, joining us for the Awakening Series launch. Um, we would like to take a moment to welcome any guests who are with us today. Yes. If this is your first time, thank you for being with us here. Um, this is something that we do on occasion about once a month during the Awakening Series. We have a forum instead of our regular faith formation classes, and we usually bring in speakers and we talk a little bit about how our faith connects with the journey that we are embarking on. So we are grateful that you are with us, and we ask that you be in community with us today and be in conversation with us, connect with us as we do this nine-month process of awakening to environmental injustice. Um, I am really glad that you're with us today, Ben. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad to be here, too. Um, we, are, we are excited to launch this series. I just want to say that this graphic behind me was mm. designed by our director of communications, Laura Gear. Um, phenomenal. <laughs> phenomenal work. Laura was working with Ben and I to really capture the essence of what we are trying to explore this year. And I also want to shout out Amy Jones for making these happen, all the things that are on your seats. I know that many of you are used to having a pamphlet, multi-page pamphlet or booklets, but this year we decided in honor of our series that we're going to save paper. (laughs) All right? So this is what you get. Okay, and on the back is the website, and the website has all of the events through May 2020. Okay, and so there are pictures of speakers, there are workshops that are listed. For those of you who have already been attending the Awakening Bible Study, that's on there as well. There's a list of books, some of which are brought today that I will reference throughout throughout this morning's session. Um, There are also just resources about how to connect with certain organizations in Charlotte. Um, And actually, we have a special guest with us today who's actually presenting on November 10th right here. And his name is John Aiken. John, you wave your hand. Yeah. He'll be presenting. He represents the Climate Reality Project. Is that? Yeah. All righty. And so I invite you all to really come back on the 10th of November to to hear what John has to say as John also joins us in this conversation. Also next month on the 13th, we will have Dr. Katherine Keller. She is our J21 speaker for the weekend and she will also be presenting. She writes on ecology and theology as well. So please go to the website, check it out so you can come out to our events. That's right. Yes. And let's, let's give it a hand for Mia who got here in April and has already planned the entire Awakening series through next May. So that's a, pretty amazing. You know, I'm and a type A. Yeah, type A, hard worker. And we have, it's an incredible series. Really, the speakers who are coming are going to uh, completely change your mind uh, on many topics and help us to figure out what it means to really awaken to this question and how our faith impacts environmental justice. Yeah. So usually on our podcast, we like to shout out an organization that is related to what it is we're discussing. And so today, I would like to spend some time on Clean Air Carolina. Many of you know Clean Air Carolina, but I actually got acquainted with some of the people who work for Clean Air um, at the strike on Friday. And Mm. if you went to the strike, Victoria, you were there, and some other people I saw sprinkled in the crowd. We were out there, and it was a phenomenal experience to see our young people, Generation Z, leading the way, um, saying we demand change, we demand that our government officials be held accountable regarding this particular issue, and Clean Air Carolina was one of the major sponsors. And so I just want to tell you a little bit about what they do. 
Um, they were founded in 2003 by a group of passionate volunteers determined to improve the quality of Mecklenburg County's air. Mm. Clean Air Carolina now champions a statewide initiative to raise North Carolina's air quality to exceed that of scientific recommendations. Their mission is to ensure cleaner air quality for all North Carolinians throughout through education and advocacy and by working with our partners to reduce sources of pollution. And yeah. so if you visit our website, we have a list of organizations on there, Sierra Club, Clean Air Carolina, some others. Click the link, and you can go and find out how you can connect with these organizations. Right. Okay? Yeah. So I would like to get started by asking Ben a question. Oh, boy. <clears throat> Why environmental justice? I wasn't here when you all decided to choose this as the awakening for this year. So can you give us and some of our newer members a little background on the awakening series and why we decided to tackle environmental injustice this year? Yeah. So a few years ago, uh, when I first started here, we had an associate uh, minister, who, your predecessor, Chrissy Williamson. And Chrissy and I were really talking about what would it be like to do a year-long series of faith formation on one topic and go really deep all the way across an entire year. And uh, we hadn't seen it really done anywhere before. And we thought, you know, we, we debated all those things. Will people get bored? Will there be enough topic and information to actually cover? Um, you know, how will, peop will people stay with it for the whole year? Or will they want us to change to another topic? And, and we debated all that, and then we finally decided we would just go ahead and jump in. And, and, and we picked the first year we decided to, to talk about race for a year. That happened to be 2016. And some of you will remember what it was like to be in Charlotte in 2016. There was a police shooting that erupted into an uprising in Uptown. And then, of course, there were lots of racial discussions around the election. And so it was quite a year for us to be discussing race. And then we decided, well, what's next after this? And we were trying to be on the cusp of what we saw as emerging social issues that were impacting the way people related to their faith, related to these emerging social issues. And the next one we kind of jumped into was immigration. And as you remember, when we picked the immigration, it was before all this stuff at the border. It was before the travel ban. It was before a lot of the laws changed. So when we dove into immigration, it was before all that. And we just we're trying to be a little, one step ahead so that we can have the conversation about how our faith relates to the issue before it's too late. And we've been lucky a couple of times, or you might say the Spirit guided us a couple of times. And then we uh, also then wanted to have a, a, a whole year just dedicated to Awakening the Body, which was a broader series, and it was not related to either race or immigration, but related to issues related to gender, sexuality, health care. Um, and we talked about that for a year. And then as we kind of prayed and discerned, what was, what was the next step for us what was the next social issue that was emerging that we really needed to be able to talk about how our faith intersects with, and we decided to tackle uh, the environmental justice. And of course, when we decided that, it was before a lot of the climate strikes. It was before Greta sat down and decided she was not going to school anymore. It was before, it was before a lot of these things have come. And so we've been out in the front. We've been, we've been very lucky and fortunate to be out in front, and we're glad that we have a chance to kind of continue to talk about that. For yeah, a year. It's, yeah, it's perfect timing. I mean, when yeah. I was at the strike on Friday, I thought, wow, we, that, we, we did this. We timed this yes. perfectly. And so um, to enter this conversation yeah. and have that kind of be a kickoff for many of us, seeing what's happening around the world, it was 800,000 people at New York mm. rallying, mm. and most mm. of them were kids. And so right. we are children. Yeah, children, cutting edge. And so that's, this is a, a good year for this. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about environmental injustice and the umbrella that that falls under. Mm. So I had a conversation with Reverend Amy Brooks, who is uh, the senior minister at a Unitarian Universalist congregation here in Charlotte. Um, and she explained to me that environmental injustice actually falls under an umbrella of uh, earth justice. And so the focus has been for Green Faith. Um, many of you know that's another organization that we plan on partnering with throughout this series. They say that earth justice is the umbrella, and there are three things under that. And so under the umbrella is creation care, mm. 
which many of you know that our Earth Creepers here have been tackling creation care for yes. a while with our compost back there, with our garden yeah. that produces food for friendship trays. Um, next to creation care is climate change or climate crisis conversation. So that's a separate issue from creation care, related but a separate issue. And then the third issue under the Earth Justice umbrella is environmental justice. Yeah. And environmental justice was um, really coined around the early 80s. Um, Reverend Chavez, who was a UCC minister, was really starting to dig into this conversation about environmental racism. And so actually one of the books that I have today that's on our reading list called Dumping in Dixie mm. is written by Robert Bullard, who is said to be the father of environmental injustice in terms of writing a lot about it. It's an excellent book that talks about the intersection of race, class, and environmental issues. Um, and so we see this term emerging around the yeah. 80s, right? And so this is actually an, under an umbrella of issues. And so throughout this series, we'll be focusing on environmental injustice, but we will also reference creation care climate as change. well as climate change. So I, it's really yeah. earth justice. I love the fact that you brought up Bullard because a lot of people don't know that the environmental justice movement started in North Carolina. How many know about the beginnings of the environmental justice movement in North Carolina? Warren County. No? <laughs> You're going to find out by the end. So in Warren County, there, the first was one of the first, the birth of the environmental justice movement because corporations were creating landfills and dumping next to poor black neighborhoods. And these poor black neighborhoods decided that they had had enough, and they began using the, 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 the techniques and the songs and the art of the freedom movement, so the civil rights movement, to protest the dumping of uh, toxic waste in their neighborhoods. And so they, you know, the song that some of you are very familiar with that we sang on the pilgrimage, Somebody's Hurting My Brother, that was born out of the environmental justice movement in Warren County, North Carolina. There are people doing lots of research on this now, trying to recover the people who were at the heart of the, issue, heart of the movement and um, who, were, who were protesting and who wrote the songs and to kind of curate the history of that movement. Bullard is the best and the first to write on that and kind of coins the term environmental justice around the, the nature of the movement. So North Carolina has a really important role in the history of environmental justice. So I think that's important. And it's important for us to, to think about the umbrella of earth justice in total and then think about these different subcategories because some of them have a different relationship to us as people of faith than just the average ordinary citizen who might be trying to get involved in environmental work. So we hear all the time the narrative in the media is about what? What is, what is the words that we, we hear all the time? Climate change, right? Mm -hmm. Climate change, climate change, climate change, climate deniers, climate science, climate this, climate that. That's just one piece of a bigger discussion. And it's, again, sort of another example of the media narrowing the conversation around one piece that is only one part of the conversation. Climate is just one piece. Of, of, what we're, of what we're looking at when we look at justice here. Right, yeah. right. And people started to model the movement happening in Warren County um, in other parts of the country. So we see this in Appalachia. We see right. this in Eastern Carolina um, with some of the waste that's in the water and the, the movement towards halting the pipeline. Um, we see this in Louisiana, where my family actually lived for many years. It's called the Cancer Zone. Um, mm. There's a, a heavy concentration of cancer cases where my grandfather and step-grandfather actually lived and they both died of cancer, which is phenomenal. But um, um, so we're seeing people starting to mobilize and they're using what happened in Warren County as their model. Mm. Um, and so I think this is important. Yeah. Additive to the conversation. I want to transition and talk a little bit about intersectionality. Mm. Um, and so we've been through awakening to racial, racial injustice. injustice. We've been through awakening to immigrant injustice and awakening to the body. Yeah. Where do you see the concentration of the intersection here? In some ways, turning toward the environment now is pretty much a logical conclusion of having discussed race and then immigration and then the body. And the reason for that is that 
a lot of environmental justice is around environmental racism, where, like you think about the Warren County example, where poor black and brown communities are being targeted as the, as the most impacted by environmental issues, right? I think Katrina is sort of the most you know, egregious example of that in modern, in recent conversation, right? And not just, um, you know, poor black and brown folks, but poor white folks too. So you mentioned Appalachia. So it, there is this sense in which environmental catastrophe hurt the poor first and worst. And it's important for us to remember that. And of course, the poor tend to often uh, be those who are racial minorities as well. So you see this justice issue there. So we've talked about race, and we even talked about a little bit about environmental racism when we talked about through the, through the race series. So having the race series as a background will help us have open eyes as we come to see in the environmental impact through a racial lens. And then immigration is a pretty important one because a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, a lot of folks who are migrating, and this is going to get more and more the case, are migrating because of issues related to climate change or issues related to environmental impact. I was just talking to Sam about this. In the future, I don't know how much longer we've got, depending upon who you look at and talk to, there will be people who are migrating because they, the place they live now is no longer inhabitable. We're already starting to see that. The biggest impact of that most recently for some of our lives was, again, Katrina, where people were displaced and had to move to North Carolina, Georgia, et cetera, and live with other people, which is what Mia, Mia actually had to do that. Um, so there's going to be more and more of that. You know, right now, I just, we just saw a picture. Mia and I were talking about seven named tropical storms all brewing in the, in the ocean at the same time and looking at how they're all forming. Eventually, there are places now that are habitable that will not be habitable, and people will have to migrate from those places. A lot of those places will be in the global south, and they'll have to come up. A lot of those places will be on coastlines, and they'll have to move inland. And we, as North Carolina, are going to have to be ready for lots of people from Florida, as Sam put it to me, moving into North Carolina because there's nowhere else for them to live anymore because the place that they once lived and grew up and, and inhabited, their place is gone. Uh, that, will be, that will be the next stage, and it's already happening, but it will be the next stage uh, of this climate catastrophe that we're entering into right now, and we need to be prepared to see that. So immigration and thinking about immigration, we've been thinking about this as citizenship, non-citizenship, but in fact our borders are just, they're just pretend, right? In the reality, it's just a space that we live in. Some live on one side, some live on the other side. If, and, and people are migrating for all sorts of reasons. They're migrating for economic reasons. They're migrating for fear of violence. Soon they're going to be migrating for the fact that they can't live where they're living anymore. And so there are going to be people internally within the United States migrating and people migrating to the United States all because of climate change. Yeah, and then, of course, the body we talked about with health care, I think would be a, I'd be remiss not to talk about the impacts of environment on our health. You think about the when, when your water is, is poisoned, you think about Flint, what does that do to your health? When you think about these areas where uh, people are getting high, high rates of cancer because of something that's been in the soil, there's a, new movie, a couple of new movies coming out about that related to a chemical, I think it's Dow Chemical Company that they were talking about this big law case related to Dow Chemical. And um, so there are, there are impacts that are uh, when we hurt the environment, we actually hurt ourselves. We think about it sometimes, the trees and the plants die or the animals die. We are animals. We're creatures. And when you hurt the water system, you hurt everything, uh, including humanity, human beings. And so actually we're going to talk about that a little bit later when we get into Exodus a little bit. But anyway, I think all the series that we've been through uh, helps, help us see the intersections that environment really touches on everything. Immigration, race, body, economics, so many other issues. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I want us to dive in a little bit to the deep question, which is what many people are asking. What does this have to do with my faith? Mm, mm -hmm. Why is this important? And so for this series, in order to connect it to our faith, we are rooting ourselves in really two bookends of our biblical text, Genesis and Revelation. And so we're going to spend a lot of the fall rooting ourselves in the book of Genesis, 
um, making references to other parts of the Bible as well. You're going to talk about Exodus a little bit. There are other um, ecological um, references in the text throughout the prophets, throughout the history books. Um, but we're really going to root ourselves in our call in Genesis. And so I would like to read a verse of scripture in which we will root ourselves for this fall season. Mm. And the scripture is from Genesis 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 15. This is a New Revised Standard Version adapted, um, and I adapted it for a reason. And it reads, the Lord God took Adam, made from the ground, and put him in the garden of Eden to serve, work, and worship the earth. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. The Lord God took Adam, made from the ground, and put him in the Garden of Eden to serve, work, and worship the earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing here why Genesis. And why Genesis is that there's explicit instructions in this text <laughs> that call us to serve, work, and worship the earth. Yeah. And as the biblical text evolves and we transition into other books, we see how even the people, which many scholars call them primeval, um, were moving away from that original command to serve, work, and worship the earth. Now, there are many of you who have been in my Bible studies thus far, maybe uh, I see uh, maybe 10 or 15 of you who've been there, and we've kind of been really working with these terms, right? But we've also been talking about the other creation stories that were happening at the time. So Genesis wasn't the only Mm -hmm. creation story happening at the time this was written down. We actually see a lot of Mesopotamian creation stories coming about around this same time. And one of them is called the Enuma Elish. And the Enuma Elish is very uh, intriguing because it actually starts with the goddess Tiamat Mm. and her husband, And they are living in this water, this water scene. Um, And then they have children. And one of the children, Marduk, decides to rebel and wants to fight, wants to fight his grandmother or great grandmother, Mm. um, Mm. Tiamat. And in this battle, it is said that Earth was created because it was just a void of water. And out of this battle, he fights Tiamat, and Tiamat explodes, and he takes the pieces of her body and creates heaven and creates earth. Mm-hmm. And out of, so out of this void of water, we see the creation of heaven and earth. And this was, a common, this was a common story being told around the time that Genesis was written, so much so that we see pieces of it in the Genesis story. Tiamat in Hebrew actually translates to English to deep. So we see this in the first chapter of Genesis, the deep void that God is creating the earth out of. Mm. And so we, we're seeing this little weaving together. And this, so it's very important that as we read through Genesis with an ecological lens, that we also keep in mind the other stories that were happening at the time it was written down by the Hebrew people. Yeah. yeah. And one of the, so then to complicate things even further about the creation story, uh, many scholars today believe that the creation accounts that we have may have been oral traditions that were not actually written down until the exile. So you have to think about the exile was, you know, very long after these stories would have happened, after the monarchy had come on, after the monarchy had fallen, and then after they had been taken off, in the, the, the Israelite people had been taken off into captivity, only then do they have the ability and the time and the, and the space and the resources to then write down these accounts that may have been oral traditions. And what we find is that there are multiple accounts. There are different groups within the Hebrew people who are trying to write this story. And there are some arguments that say that the Persian king Cyrus and the Persian group uh, gave so much freedom to the Israelite people even though there were a, divi- a division of groups within the Hebrew people, he said, look, you, you guys get to write your own laws, um, but you've got to come together and figure it out together because we're not going to have multiple law codes. So you want to write your own law code for the Hebrew people, write it, but you've got to pick, figure it out. Well, they couldn't agree on what they wanted, so that's why we have Leviticus and Deuteronomy. <laughs> you know, how many laws do we need, you know? Uh, but now we've got both, and it's why we have within Genesis... 
multiple sources writing, including two creation accounts. The creation account in Genesis 1 and the creation account in Genesis 2. And depending upon which one you read and prioritize, and if you don't keep them in tension and discussion, you really end up with two different visions of what the humanity's relationship with creation is. In Genesis 1, God commands uh, in this particular reading, in this particular story, that humans are to subdue, or you could say subjugate the earth. To take dominion is the word that's sometimes used, over the earth. And it sets up humans as better than, greater than, creatures and creation itself, and has given this power role, a a power dynamic between humanity and creation itself. And that dominionism has led many to imagine that our job is to do whatever we want to with creation, extract whatever we want, use, is another word, to utilize or to create sort of a utilitarian philosophy toward our relationship with creation, therefore extracting and using it only. So creation is here to serve us, is the way we come out of that. We take dominion, we use it for our own benefit as humans. That's one account. That's the words in one account. You can't get around those Hebrew words. They're pretty, they're pretty rough. Subdue, subjugate. But then there's a whole other story right next to it. Chapter 2, which Mia just read, which has a totally different vision, completely different language that says that we are stewards, that we are to, to, to till and to care for and to, and to manage and to love as if we're one among a larger community of creatures and we have a particular role as all those other creatures have a role. Maybe the role is to produce honey, right? Maybe it is to pollinate. Maybe the role is to to provide shade. Maybe the role is to provide food or resources or whatever um, in this ecology. But we, in our role, is to tend to that which is here and to care for and to steward in the second story. So what happens when you take one or the other, right? When you take the one that's all about subjugation and domination... It sets up humans again in this power dynamic of superiority, which, as we know from talking about race or immigration or any other topic, religion, that whenever Christians or people of faith decide to take a superior position, they almost always lead to disaster. And in this case, the victim happens to be creation itself and then people in relationship to that creation who are victimized by what we've done to the earth. So I prefer the second account, as you can probably imagine, and believe that we would do better to focus ourselves on now this second account that Mia translates even as worship uh, and to care for, to steward and to tend creation, and that to think of ourselves less as above, as greater than creation, but as a part of, and one of of the creatures in in creation with a particular role. Yeah, absolutely. And so we, we see as we move through Genesis, the people getting further and further away from this vision. Yeah. And I, I always like to skip to chapter 11, uh, mm. which some of you know as the Tower of Babel scene, mm. in which the people are building this tower and God is not pleased because they are building this empire. And so God is angry and God decides to scatter the people across the earth, which was the original command to fill mm. the earth, to replenish the earth. Um, But we see the buildings of the remnants of empire, even in the 11th chapter of Genesis and how far away the people had gotten from the original command. And then that carries forth into Exodus. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think before right there, I I just want to stop with Babel for a second, (laughs) because what comes not long around that time is the flood. Right before. Right. So you have the flood and then they still make the same mistake all over again. So the people are wicked. You have this huge, what is it, environmental catastrophic event, a la floods in the Midwest, a la Katrina. You know, think of whatever ecological event you want to imagine for this flood. And then what happens to the people? 
they turn around and do the same thing that they had done before and begin to build empire all over again in, as over and against creation itself. And so we have another event where God then scatters the people. Yeah. I thought about that. that's a good word. Scatters the people again and does so for the sake of creation itself because the people had, had in their joining together, in their unity, had in fact created a dominant empire that was oppressing people and creation itself. And so God blessedly scatters people again right from there. And then we move into Exodus. And I was recently reading about uh, Exodus from an ecological perspective. And I learned that there is a, and I even brought it with me because I'm, I'm sure that some of you are not going to believe this. Okay? I brought it because I know you're not going to believe this. There is a Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine. The, this is not, you know, Campbell. This is Yale. <laughs> this is the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine, okay? I'm a Campbell grad. I can say that. And, uh, and this is not about, the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine does not write about religion. I don't know if you knew that. Um, but there's an article here, and it's called The Origin of the Old Testament Plagues, Explications and Implications. And in this Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine, they go back and investigate the plagues in Genesis, I mean, plagues in Exodus that happened that helped to lead the people free from Egypt. And what they find there is that um, it is very easy to explain a phenomenon that begins with the first plague, which is that the Nile turns to blood, right? That something happened to the water. Yeah. And that from the water was born a whole host of anthropotic and epizoic uh, plagues that then first lead to frog population expanding, and then insect, then cows getting, lo- cows getting a disease, locusts coming, the boils coming from the animals and the livestock to the people, the people themselves dying because they've been ingesting bad food, bad water, bad meat from the cows. And so it goes back and it says, and then what does the, the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine find out? They find out that there was human involvement in the development of this ecological catastrophe that took place. So what does that mean? Scholars then looking back, biblical scholars and ecologists, ecological theologians are saying, what does that mean? It may mean that what we see in Exodus is this sense where God is conspiring with creation itself to free the people from Egypt and leaving the Egyptians to feel the judgment, which in this case is simply the consequences of their own empire building. Not God doing something to them, but God just letting them feel the consequences of what they've done to the earth itself. Now, why is that hard to hear? Because we are living in the midst of the consequences of our own actions to the world, right? And so we may need to rethink how we look at all the stories throughout the Bible where there are great ecological disasters and to think more through how those ecological disasters may in fact be a sign to us, an indication to us uh, of the judgment that we're feeling of the consequences of our action upon the earth itself, which is simply just the fulfillment of what we've done, the logical consequences, whether it's in a short term or over many generations, uh, there are consequences to the pollution of the earth, to the destruction of resources, to the extraction of the land, to the poisoning of the water, to the destruction of the ozone layers. There are consequences to these things. And it falls back on us, too. Right. And so one of the things I was telling Ben is that when I was at the climate strike on Friday, there were a lot of people talking about saving the earth. Mm. And mm-hmm. um, I, you know... The human ego is powerful, but ultimately the saving the earth is not about the earth, but about saving ourselves, right? Because we are afraid of perishing, right? Yes. We want to still be here. We yes. want our grandchildren to still be here. We want everybody to have life abundantly on this planet. But ultimately what these stories tell us from Exodus, even through to Revelation, 
which I love talking about. We'll get to that in January. But even through to Revelation, when they're seeing the same kind of catastrophe, uh, poisoned water and mountains breaking apart, people call it volcanoes erupting. Mm -hmm. um, what we're seeing is that even at the end of Revelation, there's this vision of a new, a new heaven and a new earth that somehow earth renews itself with mm. or without the people. Mm -hmm. And we think about stone ages and ice ages that mm. earth perhaps might renew itself. We just won't be here. <laughs> you know, so perhaps the, the climate strike is not about saving the planet, but about making sure that, you know, we are addressing these issues uh, mm -hmm. that are coming up about mass migration because of the peril that the planet is in. Yeah. 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 I think that's really important. One of my professors uh, when we were talking about nuclear holocaust, and when I was in seminary, and this was environment wasn't even really on the radar, the kind of catastrophe that it is, used to always critique the authors who said that human beings are at the point now where they can destroy the universe. And he would say, no, we're not. Human beings cannot destroy the universe. Human beings might be able to kill the earth or destroy the earth or blow up the earth. Maybe we might not even be able to do that with all the weapons that we have. But uh, we, can kill, we can kill ourselves. We can kill ourselves. Uh, so there's a lot of hubris in imagining that somehow we can destroy the universe. We can't. God created the universe. Only God can destroy the universe. We can destroy the earth and we can destroy ourselves. We can kill the human population on it. And so this idea that our job is to somehow save the world puts us in the position of Christ or the position of God or the position of whatever sort of salvific deity you believe in, right? And we, we, we take on this hubris. No, that's not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to save humanity. Human beings is what we're trying to work on. And that's, that's our goal, to try to figure out how to make the world inhabitable for us, to be sustainable for us, right. and to roll back all the, all the d devastation that we've caused and to try to figure out a way to live in the world in a more sort of peaceful way in harmony with all creation. That's the goal. Um, and it will take some serious work yeah. for us. But I think part of this, part of the hubris also is this idea that we are stronger than creation. And I think as creation comes back to bear upon us, we may learn a lesson in humility as we already are. As the tides rise, as the hurricanes come, as the polar ice caps melt, and as creation does what it will do, which is renew itself with or without us, we may learn that lesson in humility eventually now. And uh, so there's this, you know, I think about the great writers who have written the sci-fi epics that really help us think about this. There's one called The Revenge of Ga Ga Gaia, right? Is that how you pronounce it? G-A-I-A? -A? The Revenge of Gaia. Yeah, The Revenge of Gaia. Yeah. And um, that's a powerful... That's a powerful metaphor for what we might be experiencing. Or there's that great M. Night Shyamalan movie. Does anybody remember? What's it called? Like the, the, is it the haunting? The, it's, anyway, it's basically like people just start dying. And you realize that there's something in the wind, something in the air that's just infecting people's mind and causing them to kill themselves. And that's it. And it just purges the population. And um, I'm not saying that that's going to happen. But I'm saying that there's a, just sort of this metaphor for you know, creation coming back to take revenge upon that which has tried to harm it. Uh, there is some sense of feeling that right now in, in, as we look at this. So throughout this series, um, we're not focusing on saving the earth <laughs> or even serving it, yes, but we are focusing on reconciling with the earth, reconciling with each other, reconciling with God, um, really getting back into right relationship. And going back to the text and seeing all of the ways history has continually repeated itself, how can we learn from mm. what, has been, what has been written in our text? Yeah. Um, and so before we open it up for questions, we have about 15 minutes left, I just want to point out some of the literature that we will be um, engaging this year. Like I said earlier, Dumping in Dixie, which is by Robert Bullard. It's a, it's a great book if you're interested in it. Amazon has copies. Um, Sally McFaig's The Body of God, she is one of the, the foremost writers on this text, um, uh, feminist ecology, um, she's one of the first people I read about this. We have a book called Gardening Eden by Michael Abate, which is more of a creation care uh, study, so if you're looking for tools on how to engage in creation care, this is a good one. 
Um, and this is the one that I'm most excited about. It's called As Long As the Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock. This is by Dina Gillio Whitaker. She will actually be with us on April 1st in 2020. She'll be, we'll, we'll be hosting a panel uh, with Indigenous voices from this area featuring her, and she'll be doing a book signing and talking about her book a little bit more. So if you can get this book, really do read this so we can actually have something to talk with her about when she comes in April. Um, so we're really excited about that. There are other um, literature uh, resources on the website. So go to the website. Um, they should all link to an Amazon page so you can easily buy them. So I hope you really do engage with, with the, the work that we're doing. Um, and we'd like to open this up for a few uh, comments or questions. We have about 10 minutes left, so please come up to the mics, one of the mics. Yeah. Hi, I'm Chaz Seal. Uh, I'm, I know that you might like Amazon a lot, but hopefully Barnes & Noble or Park Road Books or other places also have the books. Yeah, that's uh, right, yes. So we don't give Amazon Remember all Amazon's the footprint, yes. <laughs> Mia, at the very beginning, you mentioned something about uh, holding people accountable, pol mm -hmm. politicians accountable. I have two questions here, one relating to it. What are we doing in the Awakening series to hold politicians accountable, saying, here's what we're learning, here's what you should be doing, especially the politicians who, that are in power? Mm -hmm. Second thing is, I'm not really sure if I understand the reconciliation here used twice in, your, in this little pamphlet. Okay. Can you address that? Sure. Mm. So throughout the series, we will, um, as a community, discuss ways in which we can hold them accountable. One of the political strategies that we are looking at right now from a public policy perspective is building out the Green New Deal. So the Green New Deal is just a proposition right now. It has, it's, not a full, it's not a full package of anything. Um, but what they are saying in the Green New Deal is they're saying, hey, we there are people who are denying that climate change is happening. So first of all, let's, let's get that out the way. It's happening, right? Climate, we're in a climate crisis. So we're trying to say, this is happening. What are we going to do to address this? What, how are we going to address our carbon footprint? Um, so maybe not spending as much on Amazon. Um, <laughs> or how are we going to address these emissions that are happening at the hands of our government? Um, so the Green New Deal is something that a lot of the people who are, who are interested in the same conversation are trying to flesh out. And so throughout the series, I'm going to be looking for ways in which we can plug into that. We can learn more about what it actually says, and then we can learn how we can plug in. I'm not sure if you have Yeah, I mean, I think that what, what our pattern has been, our model has been to do strenuous, year-long study of a topic so that we're very informed as a body and then can speak as a body about a particular topic and not just have clergy speak for us uh, or speak alone, as sometimes happens, on a particular topic. Uh, so we would like, we would like to work toward uh, a place where we can, from our faith perspective, speak carefully and uh, clearly with conviction from our faith about our perspective on environmental justice and then use that statement to hold political leaders accountable. In the meantime, we're going to look at initiatives, as Mia mentioned, like the Green New Deal and others. With the Climate Reality Project. Climate Reality Project. Al Gore has already been doing a lot of this work um, with the Center for Earth Ethics. His daughter works there. So, I mean, we're going to pursue and look at a lot of different ways that people are already holding political leaders accountable for, for that. I just want to say one last thing on that topic. I thought Greta Thunberg, Thunberg's comment uh, that I saw and read was really important. Uh, you know, what she said to Congress, to me, I think, is something we ought to, ought to print out and put on our walls. And um, one of the things she said that really struck me is that um, she kind of talked about how we all are in this place of despair. And despair leads us to paralysis. We don't do anything. Or we deny that it's even happening, right? It's like we're in grief. We're denying it. We're in despair. So either denial or despair. And so she said, yes, I'm here to tell you this. And somebody said, are you here to give us hope? And she said, no, I'm here to make you panic. <laughs> and I think that's right. It's time to panic. All right, who's next? Wait, wait, I have to finish the other, second half of the question oh, yeah. about reconciliation. Um, and so re to reconcile means to be in right relationship with. And we are calling for all of us to be 
to be in right relationship with not only the earth, but with our, each other. And so the ways in which that can happen, um, as we discussed earlier, is addressing the intersectionality of these issues. Mm. So when we see our neighbors suffering um, in Eastern Carolina because there's coal, perhaps coal ash in their water, and we want to speak on their behalf and fight on their behalf, that's a, a way of being in right relationship with each other, with our neighbors. Our water may be fine, but in Newark it's not. And so we need to come back together and say, we, we have power here, either through financial resources or through some other kind of resources. Let us go and stand with these people because that's our call to be in right relationship with them. And also just with, with creatures as well. The way, um, for those of us who went on the pilgrimage to the, farm, mm-hmm. the farms earlier this year, we were taught about what it means to be in right relationship with creatures. It doesn't mean that we don't eat the chicken, but it means that we care for it in a certain kind of way. So when, we, when it does come time for us to um, eat the chicken, it won't be, um, it, we wouldn't have made the chicken suffer. We wouldn't have made the cow suffer, right? And right. we would have taken good care of that animal for a longer duration in which many of the mass produce companies are taking care of them. Um, that's kind of yeah. the, what I mean by regular. Or poison ourselves to make it cheaper. Which is what we're really doing. Yeah, who's up? Uh, your question or your statement about the Nile turning red, uh, I don't know how many know that the Dead Sea is dying. Mm. It's already shrunk more than a quarter of a mile from its original shoreline. And the water coming in has been greatly reduced. But there's plans to maybe rectify this problem. But the problem with it, some of the plans are to pump water from the Red Sea Mm. or the Gulf of Aqaba to the Dead Sea. The problem with that, because of the chemistry and the life in those two bodies, will turn the Dead Sea red. Mm. (laughs) And of course, who wants to go float in a a red uh, lake or sea? (laughs) The other thing, real quick, uh, a few years ago I read a book, and I think the title of it, People of the Land. It's about Louisiana. This scholar at Claremont in California, the thing that troubled her was why do people that are so heavily impacted by environmental degradation not do something about it? So she chose Louisiana. And the reason, that's probably the most polluted state in the United States. Uh, The the (laughs) chemical industry, the hydrocarbon industry from New Orleans to Baton Rouge and beyond is just incredible. Well, what, and she went with a lot of presuppositions, I guess, as we all do, about what she would find. But luckily, she was a good enough scientist that she put those aside. And she actually visited and lived for over a year with the people of Louisiana. And the, the important thing, I think, to take away was uh, when you put poor people or people whose livelihood is related to one job, what she found that people whose families were suffering greatly from all types of cancers that were directly related to their environment, they would not blame the state. They would blame the federal government. The zeitgeist or whatever was that the federal government is always the problem. And when it comes to economics, people will accept lots of bad things out of fear of not being able to provide their family. And I think we, we can understand that, mm-hmm. that your fear of losing that coal mining job, whether it's, where it's completely fouling your lungs yeah. or you're getting cancer, the thought of losing and not having a way to take care of your family is so strong that you will overlook. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of them work for those companies that are polluting the air That's right. along the Mississippi River. Yeah. Hmm. And me and Jeff Parsons, first of all, thanks for pursuing this. There's a lot to it. I'm going to encourage you to add one more element to it, and that's preservation. Okay. Uh, this is big, and I'm a big preservationist, as Ben knows, because we've talked about it. Yeah. But we, we are doing a lot more than we used to do in this community in saving old buildings and putting new uses to them. What does that do? That prevents other buildings from being built that curb sprawl. Mm. What does sprawl do? Anybody and everybody in this room who sits in traffic knows what sprawl does. Mm-hmm. And sprawl adds to our carbon footprint locally. Yeah. Locally. Yeah. 
The problem is Charlotte's not had a very good history uh, up until recently in preserving old buildings. We've tended to want to bulldoze everything down and put up brass and glass. Just look at our uptown area. Yeah. You talk about politics, you don't just have to go to Congress. I would encourage people locally to contact their city councilmen and their county commissioners and talk about how it's important to preserve our buildings, to fight sprawl. We don't want to be the next Atlanta. We're heading that way. Mm. There's some people in this town that thought that was a good thing. There may be some people that still think that's a good thing, but it doesn't help in terms of preserving your environment, and it doesn't help in terms of preserving your community. And Ben knows this, but back in the 1960s, we needed a stronger preservation element to preserve our minority communities when the people of Brooklyn Mm. (laughs) got pushed out in the name of urban renewal and scattered. Yeah. And now we've got this blighted area in South Charlotte that's yet going to be developed again. Uh, and that's going to add to the carbon footprint more. So you see the cycle here. So I would encourage people to think locally and be preservationist. You're adding to environmental justice that way and building a better community that way. Jeff, that's really helpful. Thank you. That's a really good point. And I would add to that. Yeah. I, w- I would add to that point that there are, there are simple expensive solutions, I always say expensive because they are, or they would have been already done, uh, that, that can help greatly as well. I was just talking with Toby Steele before this about places in, in England and, and places in Europe where there's a lot more uh, people taking bike to work than taking car. And I think we need really to take seriously public transportation as a city. I mean, I think this is just... It is a travesty that the rail line is not completely and already done and wasn't do- was done 20 years ago. I mean, the, the, the problem of affordable housing continues to expand because people can't... I mean, you could solve some of that problem be- by building affordable housing in places off the rail line where people could live in Mint Hill and take a rail into work and back out every day. You cut down on the carbon footprint of the cars and use public transportation. I mean, there are ways that we could smart and smart infrastructure ways, build a city that would be a city that would be accessible for all people to work from wherever they are by using public transportation. So anyway, there's really important initiatives like that, that and preservation and some others that could really cut down on local pollution and carbon issues. Yeah. This is our last comment and then we'll wrap up and go to worship service. I'm Bob Thomason and uh, obviously I'm thrilled about this. I'm so glad we're, we're visiting this. Um, My hope is that at the end of this, that we as a church will also look at our own carbon footprint. Mm. Um, The Earth Keepers uh, led us in that effort for years and years, but there is so much more we can do. If we really want to be a leader in this community on the environment, we have to be able to showcase and and show people what we have done, Mm. and we have so much more to do. So I hope that will be an outcome of our of our series. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Bob. Well, thank you all for joining us. Thank um, you. Have a good worship. That's right. <laughs>